I've always thought to myself, it's, it's not enough just to kind of sign a petition or to go on the marches, you know, like if I really, really believe in something, then then you have to you have to take risks like you have to actually stand with the oppressed like I, I I actually have to put myself out there and and you know make a sacrifice because otherwise you know how are things going to change you're listening to the worldwide tribe podcast I'm your host Jazz O'Hara And together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world our worldwide tribe. Welcome back, everyone, to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I've got a really exciting episode for you today that I've actually been wanting to record for a long time about the Stansted 15. For anyone who doesn't remember the incredible story of the Stansted 15, they are a group of human rights activists who organised a non-violent action to stop a deportation flight from leaving from Stansted on the night of the 28th of March 2017. So the plane that they stopped from leaving the UK was chartered by the UK Home Office to deport 60 people to Ghana, Nigeria and Sierra Leone. Amongst these people were several victims of human trafficking. And most deportations in the UK actually take place on normal scheduled flights um, with other passengers who are not being deported. But up to 2,000 people a year are actually deported on these secretive mass deportation flights specifically chartered by the Home Office. So these flights take place at night. Uh, the passengers are often shackled in chains and waist restraint belts or leg restraints. And this is what the Standard 15 wanted to expose. Basically, their aim was to stop these charter flights from happening altogether. What actually ended up happening after that day, after their action, was that the group were arrested and instead of being charged um, with aggravated trespassing, which is the usual charge for a non-violent action like this at an airport, they were charged with terrorism-related offences and these carried a maximum sentence of life in prison. Almost two years after the action, they endured a 10-week trial and uh, they were initially found guilty, but this conviction was eventually overturned in January of this year, um, and their names were finally cleared. Very importantly, as a result of their actions, 11 of those 60 people that were due to be deported that night now legally live in the UK. To me, that's huge. 
I closely followed this story as it was unfolding and I've always wanted to talk to a member of this group. Um, I've just always thought it was an absolutely incredible thing to do and I reached out to a few of them for this episode and I got the general sense that, you know, this whole process had really taken a huge emotional toll on, on them and um, that they were busy trying to rebuild some sense of normality, I guess. Um, but one member of the group, Mel, uh, was happy to meet me. She invited me to her house and I was just totally immediately uh, enamoured by her as soon as we met. We spent the whole afternoon together chatting and uh, she made us sandwiches and we went for a walk in the forest. And Mel just has a real sense of calm and sweetness and strength about her that hopefully comes through in this conversation. This story is so inspiring to me and I hope that you enjoy it. So... I guess let's get started, shall we? I've got so many things I want to ask you. This is such an honour for me to be able to talk to you about this because I have known about your story since 2017 and followed it closely and felt a lot. I felt connected to it in a way that, you know, I really felt like car. That's something that I could see myself, imagine myself doing. I feel so much when I'm read about it. So anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. This is not about me, but (laughs) let's start from the beginning. Maybe you can give us a little introduction to who you are and what you do outside of Stansted 15. Uh, Yeah. So I'm Melanie. Who who am I? That's that's quite a deep philosophical question. (laughs) Starting big. Where do you start? Um, Yeah. So I just try to be a um a decent human being or like a decent earth citizen and um yeah that, that that's that's how i uh try and direct my life i love gardening been uh, studying horticulture i love spending time with trees i love being in forests i've moved to very close to the forest recently for my paid job I work in-house as a, as a lawyer for a health charity. I feel like that emoji with like the heart eyes sitting here because just everything that you say, I'm like, yeah, I feel that too. And like, anyway, um, <laughs> when did you first kind of become interested in the asylum process in the UK? For the last sort of 15 years, I've been doing a lot of like climate change activism and activism around the environment against, against fracking. Um, airports actions that's sort of been my main focus but I've always been very conscious about the fact that climate justice is, is racial justice um and the, the people who are suffering the most um from the climate and ecological catastrophe are people from the global south mm-hmm. so i think it was it was in late 2016 i started volunteering at my local migrant support centre and that was very enlightening that experience and then I was approached by some friends about getting involved in doing an action at an airport but with a view to stopping a a deportation yeah that's that's where it started really (laughs) 
So did you all know each other beforehand, all 15 of you? Tell us about the group. Yeah. Um, so some of the people in the group I'd known for, for many years. So they were people who I'd, I'd, I'd taken solidarity actions with in, in the past on a number of occasions. Um, but we didn't all know each other. Some of them I had known because we mix in the same circles and then others that I, I was you know, really good friends with. And then tell us mm. about how the plan came together. Yeah, so there were a series of, of conversations over weeks or months, um, some time ago now. <laughs> um, there was a lot of research um, that went into to making that happen. And um, there were lots of people involved. And all the people who were involved didn't necessarily know each other. So, for example, like I don't even know all the people that contributed to making that action a success. It involved researchers, people who were tracking the planes, like where they touched down, like, you know, who was involved, where the coaches come in. There were people who um, did um, recce, recce's at, at the airport mm-hmm. to, you know, verify that information. Um, there were people who liaised with people who were in detention. Well, there's a group called Detained Voices who who make contact with people in detention and who get their stories if people want to tell their stories, you know, about what, you know, what the hostile environment actually is, mm-hmm. like what it is like to be in detention, what these people actually go through, what their experience of the legal system is, like, like everything. So there are all different types of people that were involved in the action. It was so much bigger than than just just the 15. And was it through your volunteering at your local migrant center that you felt that you wanted to do this or did you know when you were approached that yes this is something I believe in this is something I wanted to do? How did you make that decision? Um yeah, when when I was approached you know, I, 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 I immediately recognised, like, the justice of it. And, you know, I've always thought to myself, it's, it's not enough just to kind of sign a petition or to go on the marches, you know. Like, if I really, really believe in something, then then you have to, you have to take risks. Like, you have to actually stand with the oppressed. Like, I, I, I actually have to put myself out there and and you know make a sacrifice because otherwise you know how are things going to change so yeah when I was initially approached I I immediately recognized the, the the justice of it and the more I understood actually like hearing the stories um and reading the detained voices blog uh you know, reading firsthand you know, people's accounts of, of what it was like being in those places, you know, you know, literally being in hell. Yeah, the more I the more I found out about it, the more I realised like this is something I have to do. This is something I I want to do. Did you know in advance which flight it would be and who would be on there? Did you know anything about the people that would be on there? How much did you know about that flight in particular? Yeah, we, we, knew, we knew quite a lot about it. We knew it was going to be a, a flight that was going to Nigeria and Ghana. Um, you know, we, we knew from our research that, that people who are extremely vulnerable, 
people are being like forcibly kicked out of the country without any kind of due process. You know, people who would, (laughs) in a fair, fairer system, would be legally entitled to stay here. You know, they're, they're just being kicked out. Being in detention is is to be in danger. You know, like people risk their lives when they go into into those places, or rather, the, the the government and the Home Office puts people in extreme danger by putting them into a detention centre. And people die in those places, and people die on these deportation flights. Mm-hmm. You know, where they're under British government custody. So, you know, the whole thing is is extremely violent. I've forgotten the question now. I'm so sorry. No, it was just about how much we knew about. <laughs> oh, how much we knew. Yeah, yeah. So we we knew a lot, and yeah, and I also yeah we knew the stories of of well we knew we knew a few of the stories about people that were going to be on the flight. So detained voices had released stories of people that they they'd spoken to who had been given tickets to go on that flight. Yeah, we knew we knew like the accounts of like four people, and we also knew that every every time there's a deportation flight. You know, the, the great majority of people on those flights are just being kicked out of the country without mm-hmm. any due process. I mean, you know, people are literally snatched from the streets, thrown into detention. Many of them never get to see a lawyer and then, you know, just expelled mm-hmm. from the country. Yeah. With this process of like expel first and then mm-hmm. appeal later, yeah. which is not the fair and right and just way round, you know? And I mean, that shows because the result is that 11 of these people now legally live in the UK, right? The 11 of the people on that flight. Yeah. And that number is not, in itself, is not even representative of, um, you know, the, the true number of people that, you know, that even on the laws of this country, you know, should be mm-hmm. entitled to, to stay. Because when, when we took the action... Like two days later, the Home Office organised for another flight to take all those people, you know, to force them out to Nigeria and Ghana. The 11 are the lucky ones, quotation marks, because the Home Office could only charter a much smaller plane okay. two days later. So not everyone could be forced on that, on that, on that flight. And um, we know hardly anything about the people that were actually deported two days later i think i know from freedom of information requests that they were all men okay. and i think it was about it's about 30 people 25 to 30 people that were that were deported so you know yeah we don't know maybe some of those people were asylum seekers you know maybe if they'd had the chance to speak to a lawyer etc etc you know they'd still be here now as well but what we do know is that as a result of the delay that our action caused a number of those people who would have been on that original deportation flight had time to access lawyers yeah and we know from the statistics that if someone has a lawyer your chances of success at appeal are so much higher mm. Mel, let's go back yeah. to before the action mm. how much did you know or consider what the consequences might be um, I thought I would go to prison because um, I was part of an action in 2015 where we took a direct action at Heathrow Airport in protest at the insanity of expanding an airport like Heathrow at a time of climate and ecological emergency. So 
in early 2016, we were convicted of that action. You, you know, we argued that we were trying to stop the uh, far greater harm of climate catastrophe. Um, but we were convicted and the judge told us that you should all expect to go to the prison for the maximum amount of time. Now, at that time, we were charged with aggravated trespass, which has a maximum penalty, three months in prison. Yeah, so I knew that as a result of having like a criminal conviction already, there was a high chance for, for this, for the standard action that, that I would go to prison. And that was the case for two other people in, in the group as well, who were also part of that Heathrow action. What I didn't expect was to be charged with a ludicrously disproportionate offence, like a terrorist-related offence. I didn't expect to be exposed to a life sentence. <laughs> so for like more than 18 months while we were waiting to, to stand trial, all of us had that hanging over us. Mm -hmm. I was told like if I get convicted of the offence, I would go to prison for years. And, you know, so that, that was, that was massive, you know, obviously like going to prison for years, you know, potentially up to life in prison, which is 20 years. Rapists, like I could kill someone and not even be exposed to like that risk of imprisonment. Uh, yeah, that was, that was extremely hard. <laughs> you know, that was, that was years of chronic stress. So in the run-up, you didn't expect for that, but you did potentially expect that you would go to prison for, for, for a matter of weeks or months, right, before the action. Yeah. But you still felt that this was something that, regardless, you wanted to go ahead with. There was no point that you thought, mm. Mm, I'm not sure. I was definitely sure. You know, I, I, I always, before I take any kind of action that carries a risk of, of arrest and conviction, you know, I always ask myself... If I do this and the worst possible outcome happens, will I be able to justify this to myself and to others, like, you know, to my employer, to my friends, to my family, to people who will try and attack me for, for what I've done? And if the answer is yes, you know, as it was with this case, then I always do it. Yeah, I mean, I have the utmost respect for that. I really, really, truly do. So tell us about the actual night and how things unfolded. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Such as I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we met up and um, we practiced again what it would be like at, at, at the airport so you know we'd, we'd obviously like rehearsed what we were going to do um, many times <clears throat> and on the day we went through it we went through it again so we had experience kind of like cutting cutting through a wire fence because we, we didn't take the action on, on, on the runway itself like it was it was like the equivalent of like a plain parking lot so we practiced you know packing our, our materials away and we had like scaffolding poles could to create a triangle and we had what we call them lock-ons so like metal tubes that you stick your arm in to kind of stay in place for a long amount of time so everything was was practiced so that it was all nice and slick for when we were going to do it for real we sort of ate together we um you know we laughed and joked together i think we did a bit of like meditation or visualization i've got a very clear memory of us all being in a circle and i think we were holding hands and we were just like reflecting on what we were about to do. And, and there were two red kites 
that were flying like right above us and it just felt like like a blessing (laughs) yeah it felt it felt like a like a good sign and yeah we just sort of like like mentally prepared ourselves for yeah for what we were about to do did you feel nervous too nervous really because because I knew that what we did was right and and I've you know I knew that I wouldn't regret it mm-hmm. yeah because because it was it was the right thing to do and we were all very kind of like comfortable comfortable with each other and I think all of us felt very strongly that what we were about to do was was right and actually when when we got in the van together to actually drive to the location we read out the stories of like the detained voices story. So, so we were reading out the stories of people who were going to be on that plane or, or who were scheduled to be on that plane. And we were listening to, to you know, to, to, to their experiences and, and, you know, the, the danger that, that they were in. And, and that also helped to like, you know, give spiritual sucker, <laughs> what we were doing was, was right. And it, and it would be, it would be welcomed by the people who were meant to be on that flight. And yeah, it was a, it felt like a really powerful, you know, commitment from us. Yeah, a really, really important moment of showing solidarity with people who do not deserve to be in that situation. And then what happened? When we actually got to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> well, the plan went, you know, kind of went ahead without a hitch, really. We sort of... We dropped off exactly where we where we needed to be. We could see the where the plane was from from where we were dropped off. We headed straight to the to the to the fence. Got through the fence and then walked very calmly. I think it was like a hundred meters or something, maybe less. Don't know to the plane. And um, there were two groups. I was part of wheel group, so four of us locked on around the nose wheel of the plane. We all had, I should say, we were all wearing like bright, bright pink hats and jumpers that said mass deportations kill. The other group, which was 11 of them, they created a, a tripod. One person got up on top of the tripod and, and she had a cam, uh, she had a phone and she was like live streaming everything direct to, to Facebook and thousands of people were watching it. <laughs> And then the others were locked on around uh, around the, the, the base of, of, of the tripod. Yeah. And we also had a big banner that said no one is illegal. Big, big pink banner. I've seen that in all the pictures. And then? And then the waiting game. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we just sort of like stayed there until until we were cut out. And how long did that take? So Helen was like up the tripod and think she was there the longest. I think she was there like 13 hours. What? Yeah. Okay, I was I'm, not expecting you to say that. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say 13 minutes. <laughs> no, she was there a really, really long time. And we had really good materials, right? So when you have like a lock-on tube, um, the piece have to use like lots of different blades to kind of... Because, you know, you put in loads of different stuff in there. Like, you know, there's metal in there, there's... Um, there's like tar there's like so just explain what stuff. a lock-on tube actually what what that actually means it's a big metal tube 
and um, you stick your arm in and then another person sticks sticks their arm in and then you have a carabiner around your wrist and then you, you sort of like lock on to a bar inside the tube. And then the, the tube, well, the tube that, that, that we made, it's like filled with lots of different stuff. And as a result, police can't just kind of like kind of cut through it mm. they have to use like all sorts of different blades and there's only a few people in the police that are kind of like trained to use like this this machine that kind of like cuts through a lock on and the purpose of this was so that it would take maximum time for them yeah. to remove you from yeah. the scene yeah because because the goal was to like stop that flight mm-hmm. so we had to make sure that we took on equipment that would enable us to stay there for as long as possible so we were very successful in that the 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 lock on tubes did their job. I think I was there for about, I wasn't, I wasn't there. For, I was one of the first people to, you know, to, 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 cut, to cut me out. Um, so I think I might have been there for like seven hours or so. Wow. So did it take yeah. a while before anyone sounded the alarm in the first place or that the police even found you there? No, like this, the alarm was sounded pretty, pretty soon on. So, so basically we, we got to the location um, at a time when the plane was being prepared. Mm-hmm. So the pilot was on the plane, catering staff were, okay, were so on the plane. So they saw me. So the, the alarm was raised then. Um, probably took about, I don't know, it felt, it felt like a while, but it might have been like 15, 20 minutes or something before police actually kind of like came and started speaking to us. Mm-hmm. But they were aware that we were, that we were on site like immediately. Amazing. So actually mm. that seven hours was them attempting to remove you from there. Yeah. You know, they had to call out a specialist kind of like mm-hmm. policing unit. So like, you know, they were talking to us and asking us to leave before actually someone came along with the materials and like actually started doing doing the cutting. After that seven hours, you were cut out. Were you arrested straight away? Yeah. And then? Yeah. So we were taken to like different police stations across Essex. So they split you up? Yeah. How quick were you then able to kind of go home? Yeah, I definitely spent the night in prison, or in, or in the cells rather. I, I don't exactly know how how long it was. It was definitely like the evening by the time I got out again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was dark when I was taken in and it was dark when I came out. So, I don't know. It was less than 24 hours. I noted down the timeline after that, right? And then, you know, it wasn't actually until almost two years later, right, that you were actually prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So what was the delay in that? Or was that normal? How, why did it take yeah. so long? And, you know, you mentioned before that time, what was hanging over you, the mm-hmm. words life sentence. What did your life look like in that time? When we left the police station, we were charged with aggravated trespass. Mm-hmm. The and charge, that was expected, right? That yeah. Was, mm-hmm. So that was the charge that we were expecting. That's that's the charge that has always been levelled against activists that take airport actions. You know, we had an initial hearing for that charge, which we in which we plead not not guilty. We had the the trial date set for September 2017. However, we, we were informed in in the summer, like in July August time, that that they were going to change the charge. And that they were going to change the charge to this ridiculous offence under the Aviation and Maritime Security Act, endangering persons um, at an aerodrome. And that, you know, this charge was, was 
so much more more serious it's hard to get across like how you know what an escalation that is from the original charge you know i I think of it as like you know getting a speeding ticket to like being charged with like attempted murder or something (laughs) you know i know that you were supported by amnesty through that because it seems that actually you were treated with this kind of undue harshness compared to other people taking kind of non-violent actions um do you think that you were kind of made an example of it do you think it was to deter more people from doing something similar like why do you think they decided to change that charge uh oh yeah it was definitely in my view like it was definitely politically motivated okay i think that that kind of comes from the top mm-hmm. <laughs> i think a big part of it was to do with the fact that we we explicitly made our action about trying to intervene to assist oppressed racialized communities we said what is happening is racist and the home office is racist and at the time many people didn't know about about charter flights about what they are and the fact you know these these are private deportation flights that take place in the middle of the night you know no no scrutiny no accountability and people are forced literally in chains up into a plane and they might be deported to a country that perhaps they've never even been to Mm -hmm. or in many other cases where they've never been since they were children you know i think i think that was a big that was a big shock to 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 a lot of people and a lot of people who kind of like consider themselves like fairly liberal and fair-minded and I think the government hated the fact that we'd had exposed as racist a key policy, like a key part of the hostile environment. Wow. So in that 18 months, that charge was changed. Did you guys kind of all stay in contact as the 15 of you? Did it bring you very close during that time? I can imagine that you were experiencing something that, you know, people around you could not relate to the people in your life could not relate to apart from the 15 or the 14 other people you shared this with right yeah 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 I mean I would say obviously like we all had our our different experiences of of um you know of that action and what happened next and it's obviously like incredibly stressful like having having that hanging over you it affects every aspect of your life like it affects all your relationships you know work your future like it affects like everything if you ask each of each of the others you know you might get a, a you know a different answer but you know from my point of view i felt that it did bring us closer together it necessarily brought us close together because we you know we had to meet regularly to see our lawyer you know there were all sorts of of decisions that needed to be made you know like discussion of of, of tactics and strategy we also wanted to kind of not be cowed by by what was happening to us because like you know, effectively, it was like a David and Goliath type battle where the, with the state wanting to make an example of us and wanting us to pay for exposing their brutal charter flights and, you know, wider hostile environment policy. So, you know, there were also lots of discussions around the, the wider campaign. You know, we took that action not only to assist the people that were going to be on the flight, you know, we, we made a commitment when we took that action. It wasn't just like the action and then that's it. It was like, okay, we want to help build a movement here. Mm-hmm. So there was, it was always so much to, 
to discuss. Yeah. And so in terms of the time frame, in that, the summer you were told that the charges would be changed of, tw- of 2017, but then it yeah. wasn't until the end of 2018 that you were then actually mm. sentenced, right? Or Well, we weren't actually sentenced until like February 2019. <laughs> so, uh, goes like on and on and on. Two years later. Yeah. I mean, we, had, we had a trial for two and a half months. The trial oh. started on the 1st of October 2018 mm-hmm. and it concluded with our conviction on the 10th of December 2018. Okay. Ironically, International Human Rights Day. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. And then we had to wait another two months before before we were sentenced. I wrote down that the judge believed that you were motivated by genuine reasons, right? And for that reason gave you a suspended sentence at first. The judge was extremely biased. The judge was obviously against us, like okay. right from the start. Really throughout the whole proceedings, he did things to turn the jury against us. And judging by their body language, I would say that they they were against us from the start anyway, or at least a number of them were. One very striking example springs to mind was that during um, during our defence counsel making submissions on our behalf, the judge stopped him, shouted and pointed at one of the defendants one of my Mm co-defendants, and shouted, you, you there, stop looking at the jury. (sighs) What? Again, absolutely outrageous behaviour, like implying that there is something wrong (laughs) with looking at the jury. Now, bear in mind, like at this point, we'd already been on trial for weeks. You know, we are on edge you know we're on trial for a terrorist related offense for a peaceful action to assist people who are actually themselves victims of terrorism you know in the truest sense of the word like that was unbelievable you know cut right across like the defense council speaking and you know he was he was obviously like bubbling with rage and like desperate for us all to be convicted. I mean, you could practically see the guy foaming at the mouth. (laughs) And so what are the jury to think of that? You know, they are going to think that we're guilty. So we had a blatantly unfair trial. And I think you know, the fact that the judge didn't give us a suspended sentence, bearing in mind you know, we have Amnesty International supporting mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. Like throughout the trial, an Amnesty observer is there, you know, and he knows this. You know, he's he's heard representations from our lawyers about the fact that the UN are very concerned that peaceful activists who have taken action to assist asylum seekers are being prosecuted for a terrorist-related offence. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be the sort of thing that happens in, in, in countries where there are dictatorships. You know, people don't think of it as happening in the UK, but actually we're a lot closer to the countries with dictatorships than many people actually realise. So, yeah, I think the fact that he gave us a suspended, well, gave me a suspended sentence and, um, and the other uh, defendants who, who also had convictions from Heathrow. Yeah, I don't I don't think 
that's because like he's sort of like fair-minded or, or reasonable i think there was a there was a massive massive campaign at that point you know a lot of people a lot of important people in society like you know various mps and stuff were asking questions there was there was a lot of there was lots of pressure mm-hmm. i don't know if there was any you know if he, if he felt the pressure personally you know i think i feel like he was carrying out a role that the state you know that the state wanted him to to carry out and also he would have known that the fact of everything we had to you know that we had to endure that we had to go through was in itself a punishment the years of living with the trial lasted way longer than it was scheduled to last all of that was 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 punishment was extreme punishment yeah i think i think he was i think he was more desperate to have the conviction and and less kind of like concerned about you know kind of sending us to prison i mean i, I you know there could have been riots if we would have gone to to to, to prison i think yeah, I sort I sort of feel that was kind of like a more acceptable way of, of of diffusing the situation at that point, while still kind of leaving us with this terrorist related conviction. Got you. I really appreciate you for making that clear because yeah. it's so easy to kind of read about this online and, and not understand actually the pressure that you were under during this point and and how unfair the whole process actually was and unjust the whole process actually was that kind of came to light it was january 2021 was it this year yeah at the end of january this year yeah things were overturned and you appealed Mm. right and Mm, that conviction mm. was actually quashed Mm. so tell us about that tell us about how that felt i mean yeah, sort of mixed mixed emotions, really. So it took so long for the appeal to actually be heard. When we got the conviction, like it was such a blow. It was such a blow, but immediately the lawyers were like, don't worry, we're going to appeal this. And for me, it was a relief that like, okay, we've been convicted and that's like completely messed up. But, you know, we will clear our names and... um so just to um, clarify on that, that like actually in being convicted, um, you guys all felt like they hadn't heard you. It was unfair and that they hadn't seen your kind of perspective on this rather than, you know, because you'd said that you were mm. actually expecting to go to prison initially. Mm. It wasn't by this point a positive thing. It was a negative thing mm. that they had actually convicted you of these charges. Yeah, it was it was really negative because I mean, not not just for us, but. Like, if people are going to successfully be convicted, well, A, prosecuted and be convicted of terrorism-related offences for peaceful direct action, you know, that has consequences for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that has, like, a chilling effect on, on, on civil society that's going to discourage people from even going to protests. And people who actually take direct action could face, like really really serious charges like that's i mean i i don't think we live in a democracy anyway but that that's like another level you know what's happening to migrants and also like you know what what's what's starting to happen to to like other oppressed groups you have to like really really fight it and we have to recognize like it's not just you know it's not just my rights or or you know people people who come to this country and try and build their lives here like this this is this is all of us like we all massively stand to to lose here big deal 
Yes. Okay, so January 2021. Oh, yeah, yeah how, how I felt, yeah. Yes, yeah. that appeal happens and yeah. the conviction is overturned. Yeah, yeah. So I think because it's kind of lasted so long, you know, and I, I feel like I've been fighting for, for so long. There was a window of time where I thought like, you know, things might, I, I thought we might actually succeed in our goal of like ending charter flights. And that was when Jeremy Corbyn was, was um, leader of the Labour Party. And his the official Labour policy at that point was to end charter flights, was to close down two of the most notorious detention centres, was to restrict deten- detention to 28 days, which is not the goal. Um, you know, you shouldn't be anyone in detention at all. But, you know, from it's where better. we are at the moment, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's like massive. Yeah, you know, there was a moment where it felt like, wow, you know, things things could things things could change and and I still think you know things can change very very quickly and we can never really know the true effect of our of our actions our actions have a ripple effect and and we also never know really what the next big intervening event is going to be yeah I realize I'm I'm wittering on here this (laughs) witter away I'm hanging on to every word here so you're good so you know it's been it's been kind of like quite quite up and down uh really People are still being deported by by charter flights. That brutal process is still happening. But there are, you know, we know from our action that there are, you know, 11 people who who are still here, who are living their lives and um, are in a place of, 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 of safety. And our action kind of contributed to, to, to that situ- situation, um, which is, you know, really, really good to know. More than contributed, you know, that yeah. made that situation to come to be and that's 11 people in 11 lives which is is huge so yeah not just their lives but you know their families lives Mm -hmm. some people have gone on to have children you know have you ever met anyone or are you in contact with anyone from that flight got at least one person's phone number and you know we text sort of now and again they live quite far away and there's another person who is a survivor of 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 trafficking Mm -hmm. that person recently got their refugee status so I just write to that person via the lawyer and they write back, which is really lovely. <laughs> yeah, I think there's about four or five people in, in total that, that I have sort of like some contact with by text, by email, by, by letter. <clears throat> and, and it's really nice. Like I've, got, I've got this sort of um, dream that we will meet up one day. I didn't want to propose it like very early on because... You know, I recognise that, you know, these people have been through like incredible traumatising experiences and, you know, mm-hmm. may- maybe even just the idea of like meeting with us might remind them of, of that night, which was like, <laughs> you know, must must have been torture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the pandemic happened and now it just doesn't feel like like it's the right time to mm-hmm. suggest anything. But I do, you know, my, my, my dream is to is to is to meet some of these people. And I've, I've actually met I've met two of them already. And there's one person who is who is actually quite outspoken and has written stuff. You know, he's written stuff in the Guardian. He's come and spoken um, at a number of events that we've done. That's always been really good. You know, it's always it's always extremely powerful to to hear from someone like that. Yeah, I can imagine that at an event with you guys, one of you guys speaking, and then that person who was actually on the flight speaking. Because yeah. I, I imagine you didn't actually see each other that night, did you? Like they didn't no. see you. They didn't go. They didn't board the plane. No. 
so it's all happened afterwards that you guys have formed these connections wow that's awesome what an incredible story there's there's like a book or a film in that to be had for sure as well i think (laughs) (laughs) i think so but yeah how do i feel about about the appeal like a it took way too long (laughs) b you know, I wouldn't say that, that was justice. As a lawyer myself, you know, I know that the legal system is not about justice. A court of law is not a court of justice. Like they are very, very different things. And so I never expected to get justice from the legal system. However, having my name cleared does have very important practical consequences for me. Like it means, for example, I, I, I will find it easier to get jobs because mm. I don't have to declare that I've got like a very, very serious conviction and explain myself. Yeah, there are all sorts of of, of, of practical consequences and, and just like the kind of like anger and frustration that I have felt all this time, like having this unjust conviction. Well, that's no, what I want to talk that. about, Mel. That's what I want to mm. talk about is like the the emotional impact of this, the consequences of everything that's happened that people don't see, that anger, mm. that frustration, that chronic stress Mm. that you've lived with for years and years Mm. let's talk a little bit about that and how you're kind of how how you're feeling now how you are now Mm -hmm. yeah um at the moment i'm feeling kind of reasonably reasonably strong yeah i was i was living with with chronic stress and 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 even now i still get like really angry about it i still have lots of questions of the home office i'm still carrying out you know, lots of research to try and get some accountability. You know, I don't know to what extent I am a target. I feel like I kind of have to watch my back and be very careful. The state can like murder people in in detention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I I also recognise that I've that I've got a lot of privilege. But you know, as an activist, as someone who speaks out. I also make myself a target and I have to live with that every day. You know, when I took that action, the consequences, like I continue to feel the consequences now. And like, you know, I, I don't have any regrets. Like I was banged to rights. I would do it again. <laughs> but um, Paulo Freire, I don't know if you know Paulo Freire. This is, is, he was a, a Brazilian sort of like educator and, and, uh, and writer but I, th- I think it was him who said, if you stand with the oppressed, if you truly stand with the oppressed, you will be treated like the oppressed. And whilst I recognise that, you know, of course, as, as, a, as a white woman, I have, I have a lot of privileges, I really do feel the truth of that, of that statement. It's been non-stop. It's, yeah, it's been not like I, I constantly have to defend myself. I'm constantly called to, to account for my actions. I'm constantly made to pay for, for what I did <laughs> by abusive people and abusive institutions. Like they abuse their power and, and they kind of dress up the abuse as like, oh, you don't respect rule of law because, you know, you've got a criminal conviction. You know, Martin Luther King said, you know, to, to take action um, that conscience tells you is, is, is just, is, is in reality to, to pay the highest respects to, to the law. It's not the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I, I undertook a peaceful 
action completely peaceful like the only damage was the damage to the fence the 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 perimeter fence which the cps estimated costs like 250 quid to replace or 150 pounds to replace i think there are people who are on that flight who, who now have refugee status right which means that the government even how brutal and 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 like unjust they are recognize that those people would have been at risk if they were deported mm-hmm. to uh, their country of origin. All of that is completely invisibilized, you know, because the way these abusive institutions and abusive people work is that, you know, they just focus in like you got a crim- criminal conviction and then they use that as an excuse to justify all kinds of like sanctions and penalties against me. It's just so exhausting. Amnesty International recognised us as human human rights defenders. Like globally, human rights defenders, like activists, they face really, really serious threats to to their life. I I don't worry about losing my life when I when I when I do activism. Right? I I know I'm not going to be shot dead. Like if I take an action at, at Heathrow Airport or you know Stansted Airport, or at least I. You know, I've got strong confidence that that won't happen, right? But, right, (laughs) I do live in a country where I can take a peaceful action and be prosecuted for a terrorism-related offence that carries a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. That's a risk to your life, right? It's, It's certainly a risk to my mental and physical well-being, the, d- the day after my sentencing, I, I had to have major abdominal surgery, but I had to go into the court with a suitcase full of my stuff. We all did, you know, we were all, all and lawyers said, you know, like, don't know what's going to happen, you know, like, you know, just, just bring your stuff, like, just in case. Like, I, I, I had sepsis, <laughs> like, two weeks before, you know, I was still taking, like, medication to, to deal with the sepsis. It is so oppressive and living, living with oppression, fighting oppression and, you know, living with oppression yourself that, you know, these abusive institutions impose on you. It's like so draining and wearing. It affects your well-being so much. And even if you're a strong person and I, and I do a lot of stuff to like build my, my resilience, like I go and spend time in the forest. I plant things. Um, I do. I do things to like nourish me and, and self care. But you know, even with all that stuff, you know, it's it's just so draining. Like living with the weight of of oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I wrote down some words that like really summed it up for me. Preventing a crime is not a crime, mm. right? And should not be treated as such. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is what you would say to somebody wanting to take nonviolent direct action like you did based on something you believe in and something that you know to be wrong based on everything that you've been through and where you're at now. Is there anything that you would want to say to that person? Yeah, I would say 
like the, the most proudest moments of, of, of my life have been, you know, taking direct action. Like the standard action was the best thing that I've ever done in my life. I'm really proud of it. But I would say go into it with your eyes open and think about what the worst case scenario is and expect the worst case scenario to, to happen. You know, do your research, like understand what charges can be leveled against you and whether you're, you know, you're willing to, to deal with that. If the if the worst case scenario is, is a prison sentence, well, can you deal with a prison sentence? Like start building your team now, like start building your support network now. You also need to be careful about about who you about who you speak to. Like I, I've never told anyone. Like prior to action, I've never told anyone I'm going to do an action. Um, but there are things that you that you can do. You know, you can you can start building your team of people who are going to support you. Like for example, like the Stansted crew, we had a, we had a well being like support group. Um, you know, people who regularly checked in with us who bought us things, who That's wrote so letters cool. to us. Yeah, yeah. And that, that stuff meant meant so much. You know, like people, like the community in Chelmsford where, you know, we, where we had, we stood trial. It was so supportive and so lovely, like the Quakers in particular, but like, you know, so many other people, you know, there were people that put us up for two and a half months, you know, wow. just opened their homes to us and fed us and like loved us and cared for us. Oh, gives um, me goosebumps. I know, I know. It's so amazing. You know, you need things like that. How are you gonna? How are you gonna cope? Also, the consequences last a really, really long time. You know, if you if you do something, you might in your life think like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have any commitments, or, or you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And like, the legal process can last years and years. You know, like for example, one of my co-defendants between like the action happening and us actually being convicted. You know, because the whole bloody process took so long. You know, yeah. she, she actually. She was heavily pregnant at the time of our conviction. Imagine. Yeah. yeah your life circumstances change yeah. in that time over those years, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you need, you need to be prepared for that. You really need to go in with, with your eyes open. No, I commend you so much for actually standing up because exactly as you say, like it's one thing saying the words, but it's another thing taking the actions and taking the risk, right? I mean, I probably won't actually put this in the podcast, but it always reminds me of like when I was a kid, I told you that my mum was Dutch and uh, I was obsessed with the diary of Anne Frank. And when I was like about the same age as she was, I was like really obsessed with it. And I used to always go to her house when um, we were in Holland and I always thought you know if I lived in that time I would be that family that would put my life on the line to like look after her to hide her to, in, in our attic right and we all like to think that we all like to think that but when it actually comes down to it would we you know you never know how you might behave when when the opportunity arises you know this all sorts of different people that were involved in mm. in the action like I for example I'm not the sort of person that would like I'm a researcher and I'm someone who's good at the legal stuff I was more helpful like once the action actually took place <laughs> but I'm not the kind of person that can initiate something so yeah you never know you never know yeah, how much true what, what... I mean I interviewed um do you know a guy called Rob Laurie he was a volunteer in Calais who he um also had quite a lot of press around him because he was convicted for uh people smuggling because he um brought a three-year-old Afghan girl from Calais to the UK um, and you know eventually years passed but it was 
deemed by the court as a crime of compassion that's the term Mm. that they used Um, and there was a big movement around that as well amongst the activist community in France and in the UK when Mm. we were working in Calais but it really resonated with me at the time because it was we were in Calais at the same time like 2015 2016 and um, yeah we did an episode together and you know he said exactly the same thing absolutely I would do it again absolutely I acted in love you know that's what it came down to i saw this little girl living in a tent in the mud and i was like what the fuck this should not be the case yeah it's a really powerful story Well, when I was talking about my, my personal thing and, and mm. I was saying about like, oh, I was not enough to go to like mm. do the petitions and like the marches, um, I didn't mean to, to imply and I hope it didn't come across. I don't think there's like a hierarchy of like activism. I don't think, you know, because I did like an action that that's sort of like even more movement building than, you know, like the mm. kind of thing that, that you do. I mean, like you like devote your whole life <laughs> it sounds like your whole family does as well towards the the showing solidarity and like you know directly tangibly helping people that you know just de- deserve help and support and, and 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 love and i like really really respect that i think there are, there's all sorts of different ways mm-hmm. in which we can challenge like this unjust system and you know work together with people who are also striving for their own liberation amplify their voices and you know like work for collective liberation like that's that's why i see this you know ultimately the, the goal of all of all of our efforts thank you so much for actually sharing this because i can imagine that it's not easy to relive it's not an easy story to tell and i i really appreciate you for doing so because i think it's a really important one for people to hear thank you thank you for giving me the opportunity That was the amazing Mel from the Stansted 15. I so hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to hear what you think on social media. Connect with me on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. You can send me some suggestions or questions or ideas for future episodes there too. Um, Other actions that you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop. You can buy a t-shirt or a hoodie. You can also donate. Uh, All of those details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. You guys know what to do. It helps more people find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.